Good morning, church. All right, so today's scripture reading will be from the book of Romans, chapter 9, starting at verse 6, and we're going to end at verse 13. That's Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Let us stand for the reading of the living word of God. And it reads, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the living God. Please be seated. How many of you have wondered how the Israelite people in the Old Testament who were so blessed could deny God in such large numbers? How many of you have wrestled with truly understanding why so many people in our day hear the gospel without any positive response? Maybe there are some here who know certain people who seem to be walking with Jesus at one time, only to walk away for good, never looking back. Others wonder how such godly parents could raise kids in the Lord and then see the majority of the kids decide to live apart from Christ, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. How can this be? Sure, we can come up with some good reasons, like their love of sin, prideful hearts, the influence of worldly culture or secular schools, or falling in love with the wrong person. And these are real oppositions, right? To look for, out for indeed. But in the end, ultimately, when it comes down to it, all we can do as Christians is to be faithful to our call and lead people to Christ. All godly parents can do is pray diligently to train up their children in the Bible. Because in the end, God will have mercy on whom he wills. And he will pass over whom he wills. In the end, the doctrine of unconditional election is true. God, before the foundation of the world, determined who would be saved and who would be passed by. The election, this election that the scripture talks about is not conditioned upon anything in us, but according to the counsel of his sovereign will. Charles Spurgeon, when referring to not just the biblical reality of this doctrine, but the logic of it as well, states, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. 
and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me. For I never could find it in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine, the doctrine of unconditional election. Spurgeon understood that if God's electing love toward him was conditioned upon anything in him, there would be no hope, no hope left. But praise be to God. God's election is unconditional. The theme of this morning's message is salvation is solely based on God's sovereign, unconditional election. Today we'll see through God's word a clear view of how God is fully sovereign over our souls. And that he alone has the freedom when it comes to our salvation. And as we walk through the passage in Romans 9, 6 through 13, it is my hope and prayer that we will believe in our minds and taste in our hearts five awesome truths about this doctrine of unconditional election. Consider the first glorious truth about God's election. God's election is grounded in Scripture. God's election is grounded in Scripture. Notice verse 6 of our text. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Why would Paul even mention something like this? As if it's possible for the Word of God, the promises of God in the Old Testament Scriptures, to fail or fall to the ground in defeat. As if the prophet Isaiah never said, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. I'll tell you why. Because Paul just got through in Romans 8, proclaiming encouraging words of salvation, telling Christians that, yes, trials have come, and suffering will always be part of the Christian life in one way or another. But you can rest in the fact that there is no condemnation for you anymore. If you come to God by faith in Christ, Christ took upon himself your sins and he will keep you walking in the spirit, persevering in the faith. Why? Because God has a plan for the elect and it is fixed in the heavens. It was decreed before you were born and it is to conform you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reiterates this evidence of those in Christ. In Romans 8, identifying them with those who love God. And then he tightens that belt of truth and strength by putting a golden chain of redemption around their spiritual necks. He says in Romans 29, 30, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is such good news that Paul follows it up by saying, what can we say to these things? Right? What can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then he makes it crystal clear in next nine verses that absolutely nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing. But then it appears in chapter 9 that Paul's heart 
starts aching for his Jewish brethren. His words, he words it like this in verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Pastor explained last week why the apostle had such anguish over his lost brothers and sisters. And Pastor also explained many of the reasons why Paul's fellow Israelites seemed to have fallen from grace. He walked us through the Israelite history where they had blessing after blessing, grace after grace, and they still chose to kill the prophets. Worship idols, right? Failed to see the purpose of the law. And the worst sin of all, they helped put their own promised Messiah on the cross. This is why Paul, after drying his tears, says the Word of God is still standing strong. Paul loved people, amen? Especially the Israelite nation that he grew up with. But at the same time, the eyes of Paul's heart has been opened. The veil has been removed. He knew not all who are part of ethnic Israel were spiritual Israel. Yes, God may have elected or chosen the Jewish people as a whole for the purpose of his will in many ways, one of which was to bring the Messiah Jesus through that line. But most of them, God did not choose for salvation. Family, we have eight verses in today's text. We see them up on the screen that, uh, where Paul defends the sovereignty of God in election out of these eight verses. Half of them give reference to the Old Testament. Three of them are in Genesis and one's in Malachi. The rest of the sermon, I'll focus how Paul explains through gospel, a gospel-centered worldview, or God centered goggles, as Nick would say. <laughs> Paul saying, the word of God didn't fail. Right? You've just misunderstood the Bible. There's a practical lesson for us here, church, in this point. How often do we see people doubt God's power or faithfulness? Only to find out afterwards that this doubt was a result of their inability to interpret God's word correctly. Unbelievers or misguided Christians saying things during the COVID crisis like, I thought your God protects Christians and covers them under His wings. I thought you can do all things through Christ. Why would you be so concerned about a virus? Or doesn't your Bible say God is love? Look around, man. Where's the love of God? Close to 200,000 deaths in the U.S. alone from this virus. It's not as though... The word of God has failed, right? No, God's word stands strong. Yes, there's suffering all around us, but doesn't Romans 1.18 tell us the wrath of God revealed is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? And yes, God does protect us as Christians, the elect. But nothing, I mean, nothing will separate us from his love, Amen. But this doesn't mean his purpose to bring us to glory doesn't include suffering here on earth or even death. Jesus said to his disciples, there's a good chance you will have trouble. (laughs) That's not what he said, right? You will have trouble. Isn't that what Jesus said? But take heart. I have overcome the world. We are grounded in God's word, family. And so was Paul when he defended God's sovereign freedom to choose whom he wills 
and pass over whom he wills. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it isn't true. For God's word in the gospel itself has always had radical elements to them. Notice the second glorious truth about God's sovereign election. God's election is radical. Let's take a look at how countercultural or radical the electing love of God is, church. I, I see it every day when I look in the mirror. Barely past high school. Terrified of public speaking, self-destructive, with no concern for others. I was a drug addict, an alcoholic, a smoker, a gambler, a womanizer, and God elects me. <laughs> Transforms me to preach his word and serve and lead my family in a godly manner? Now that's radical. I know many of you guys can resonate with that. It makes no sense from our perspective why God would elect us to be a vessel of mercy. God's election is so radical. When you come to Christ, you better get used to being different. You better get used to different in general. Amen? God loves to glorify Himself in this way. It's clear. Let's see what Paul has to say about this awesome reality of election. Notice verse 9. Scripture says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Then verse 12 and 13 says, She was told the older will serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Don't worry, we will walk through verse 13 in the next point. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But for now, consider how awesome this is. Both of these historical Old Testament stories show that God sovereignly works in mysterious ways. In verse 9, Paul's alluding to Genesis 18 where Abraham and Sarah were losing all hope to have that child of promise together. As a result, they took it upon themselves to make it happen on their own, going outside of the marriage impregnating Hagar, the slave woman. But God still had a purpose that he was about to carry out. And it wasn't through Hagar's child Ishmael, but through Sarah's child Isaac. God told Sarah this would happen, right? That he would break through that barren womb. Anyone remember the response of Sarah? <laughs> exactly. She laughed. Things like this don't happen. No one gets pregnant in their 80s or 90s. Right? But I have a question for you guys. Is there anything too difficult for the sovereign Lord God who decrees the end from the beginning? Of course not. His election's radical. He carries out His promises this way. And that's exactly what He did by giving Abraham and Sarah, a son, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. Sure, Abraham had a son named Ishmael through Hagar, and Ishmael wasn't forgotten about either, right? He was blessed in many ways, we see in Scripture. Just as a non-elect throughout history are given many common graces from God, blessings that are not salvific, but God chose to place a saving hand of election on someone else, and it was the child of promise. 
Isaac. God's election is radical. This is not normal what we see here. A 100-year-old father, 90-year-old mother, but again, God has the freedom to choose whom he wills and pass over whom he wills. Notice God's electing, radical electing love in Jacob. Verse 12 and 13, she was told the older will serve the younger. What? (laughs) The older will serve the younger? God, God says, I will place my electing, saving love on Jacob, not Esau. Wait a second. This is is not going to work. This will cause people to stumble in the Jewish culture. The younger always serves the the older. There's great meaning and glory in being the firstborn. God is free to do what he wants, church. God has a freedom to choose whom he wants. God is a counter-cultural, radical God. Remember what Paul's doing here. He's expositing or explaining rightly the Old Testament scriptures. God's promise stands. God's promises, all his promises stand. God's election is grounded in scripture. And yes, it's radically to pray, I mean, display before our eyes. It was never intended for God to elect all Israel, right? For all Israel to be saved, to be God's chosen people in the spiritual sense. It's the children of promise, not the children of flesh that are God's true people. And we will develop that more, that idea that it isn't race, but it's grace that saves us. And our last point, we'll talk about that. But Paul's going back to Genesis, showing his people and those Gentile Christians who are now learning the Jewish scriptures that God has been working from the beginning to save a people for himself. And this glorious truth of God's personal electing love is grounded in scripture. It is radical at times. Do you guys believe this? Are you tempted? Maybe you guys are tempted to look at God's plan as a neat, reasonable, safe demonstration of his love. Maybe you had a friend, or you have a friend who's been denying Christ for decades. He or she appears confident in their worldview and shows no interest at this point to change. You might be thinking this person said in their ways. They have the gospel. They heard the gospel many times from their friends and their family. What can I do? Sarah had this type of thinking. I had many chances over the years. It was, if it was going to happen, if I was going to have a baby, it would have happened already. So what can Abraham do about it after all these years? Can't do anything about it. What can you do about your lost friend who's on a path to hell? Nothing. Abraham his own had no power to bring that womb to life, and you can't bring that spiritual dead heart to life, but God's electing radical love can. This doctrine of election that God is free to save who he wishes should give us so much hope. Right? Are you kidding? Let's remember that when we're with these unbelievers who just appear to not want to believe in Christ. Don't give up on those souls. Those souls, it's like those dry, dead bones just appear to be dead. Don't give up on that. Because what did Jesus say to religious hypocrites about the, uh, the stones? He said, I, I'll tell you that 
out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. Amen? Meaning God can make children a promise if he wishes, who trust in Christ when he wants. For those of you who are watching, who feel as if your past or your current ways have destined you to a hopeless future, remember these events that are grounded in Scripture. God radically chose to bring an elect soul out of a 90-year-old barren woman, and he chose to flip the Jewish culture on its head having the older son and his descent that served the younger's line in a Jewish culture that never heard of such a thing. God can radically save you. You want to be elect? Believe. Believe. Trust in Christ and prove your election to be true. For although you must be chosen to believe, there has never been anyone who threw themselves at the mercy of Christ who hasn't found Jesus to be a perfect Savior. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God's love is radical. How else could the God of glory exalt all His attributes in such a mighty way? And this is what our third truth about God's sovereign election entails. God's election displays His attributes. God's election displays His attributes. This is the A in the, the grace acrostic, right? Grounded in Scripture. Radical. And then we got attributes. We will... <sighs> Let me ask you guys something. What are we created for? What's the purpose of life? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God, right? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were created to exalt the glory of the triune God, the God we learn about in the scripture. And what better way to display, for God to display the justice, the wrath, the grace, the mercy, the power of God, than to do what Paul talks about later on in this chapter when he says God creates vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. Notice verse 13. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau hated. These powerful words here are, of course, grounded in Old Testament Scripture. Specifically, they are the words of Malachi, the prophet Malachi. Now, some would say this means God loved Esau less. That's what this means. This is what the word hate means, to love less, some would say. They would say the same word hate is used in Luke when Jesus commands us to hate our family in order to be a true disciple. He says, Jesus says that we, we should be willing to die for him or lose our family for his expense, at his expense. So our love for our family is like hate compared to how we love our Savior. But as pastor hammers into our heads over and over, context is everything. This section's not about, this section's about salvation, right? It's more specifically about whom God chooses to save in whom he chooses to continue on their way to eternal damnation. So Paul's using an example about his sovereign election here. That's what he's talking about. He chose Abraham over all people, all other people, to be the father of the faith. He chose Isaac instead of Ishmael to be saved, and he continued, continued that redemptive line. And then we see Paul's also, he shows us a clear example. He's like, if this doesn't... Uh, 
makes sense to you. I'll give you two brothers who have the same parents, right? They were in the womb at the same time, but before they were born, I had done, before they'd done anything good or bad, I will decree to love one and hate the other. Paul saying Jacob will be saved and experience my blessings and love for all eternity. But Esau, I will choose to pass over and he will continue in his sin, cursing me, denying me for all eternity. He will be a vessel of wrath. Family, God doesn't (laughs) send the ones He loves to hell, does He? Psalm 55 states, God hates everyone who does iniquity. What are you going to do with that verse? God loves, hates everyone who does iniquity. This is Scripture. These aren't my words. Not God hates iniquity, but God hates everyone who does it. The bottom line is that everyone who's in Adam who is a sinner without a Savior, God pours out His wrath on them. And He is just to do it. But we have to be careful here. Do not picture in your mind that there are two people here who, who grew up seeking God. And God chooses to do something in Esau's heart so he can't believe. This is not what God does with the non-elect. He passes over them. He leaves them to do what they desire to do. Romans 1.24 says it this way, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. The truth is, hell is locked from the inside. The late D. James Kennedy uses a real helpful illustration. He says, say you have five people planning to hold up a bank. They're friends of mine. Well, I find out about it, and I plead with them not to do it. I beg them. Finally, they push me out of the way, and, I head out, and they head out. But I tackle one of the men as they're running to rob the bank and wrestle him to the ground. The others, they go ahead. They rob the bank. In the process, they end up killing two, two civilians, a guard. They're captured. They're convicted. They're sentenced to life in prison. And then one man who is not involved in the robbery goes free. Right? Now I ask you guys this question. Whose fault was it that the other men were arrested and sentenced? Can they blame anyone else but themselves? No. And this other man who is walking around free, can he say, because my heart is so good, I resisted the temptation. I'm free. The only reason he's free is because of me, the one who stopped him, right? I restrained him. Kennedy says in his illustration. So it is that those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. God elects Jacob, and then he passes over Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Some of you will still think this isn't fair. I don't buy it. It's not a good illustration. It's, it's, not, it's still not fair. Maybe you're thinking that man, that man in illustration should have found a way to tackle them all, right? In other words, God should save everyone. 
But I challenge you to consider God's holiness in the sinfulness of man. No one deserves to be saved. No one deserves this amazing grace that we sing about. God would have been perfectly just just to pass over everyone and he would have left us in our sin and we would have went on partying all, all of our way to hell, right? I know this might sound like a Calvinistic thing to say and it might score some points of my zealous Reformed brothers, but family, I just say this, I say this because it's true. My experience with this passage has been the opposite. I can't believe, I could not believe when I first saw that, that God would choose to love Jacob or anyone for that matter. He's all-knowing. He knows our hearts and what they will produce in our lives. Just think of Jacob, right? Jacob was a liar. He was a deceiver, complainer. He fell short of God's glory. But God chose him anyway. And of course, my, my thinking is, of course he hates Esau. God is holy and righteous. He hates sin. We are sinners. He's a sinner. <laughs> right? What does Romans 3 tell us? I know it's been a while since... We've went through Romans 3. We don't seek Him. We don't fear Him. We don't follow Him on our own, without Christ, that is. We curse Him with all of our words and our actions, and we run from Him as fast and as far as possible in our flesh. He should throw us all in hell where we deserve to be. But God, in His mercy and love and grace, He chose to save some. And quite frankly, many. For what does Revelation say? Every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language will stand in front of the throne worshiping the Lamb in heaven. Wow. So my question to you guys is this. How will God's attributes be displayed in your life? Make no mistake about it. We're all sinners, and God's justice will be poured out. Will you believe and show that God's wrath has been placed on Christ in your place? Or show, will you continue in your sin and show that before the foundation of the world, you were placed in Esau's category? Will you run to Jesus and show that you have been made a sheep who hears his shepherd's voice that's what the fourth glorious truth about election shows us. The fourth point, God's election calls out to the chosen. Jesus' sheep, God's elect, hear the Savior's voice. Notice verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then we look at verse 11. <clears throat> the other one was uh, verse 7. And then this is verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In verse 7, where it says named, offspring named, the word in original is the same word as the last word here in verse 11 which is translated calls. It's kaleo in Greek. It means not, it's not a general call. It's not that God calls Isaac's offspring the same way he calls all of the Israelites. 
God calls Jacob. It's not like God calls Jacob and then he sits back, right, and waits for him to respond. No, this is an effectual call. A call that creates what it commands, family. As a theologian's call, it's an irresistible grace. That's the, another theological term. But God uses means. Pastor talked about that a couple weeks ago. Means to bring about his purpose. Church, we don't know who the elect are. Right? We don't know who the elect are. Charles Spurgeon once said, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. <laughs> but since he didn't, Spurgeon says, I'll preach whosoever will. We as Christians call everyone to repent and believe in the gospel. That is the general call. This is part of our marching orders as Christians to call the world to Christ, to proclaim or tell others the gospel. But as we noted earlier, we can't create lovers of God. We can't make people believe in the gospel as much as we would love to be able to do that, right? Only God can. This is why God in His sovereign plan ordained to use this effectual call, this call that creates what it commands to come alongside the gospel message to create regenerate Born-again souls. This is what Paul is saying here when he says, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Election doesn't come by works or anything we do, but we are saved because of Him who calls. By Him who brings the Gospel to us with the Holy Spirit power, quickening to make real children of promise. Just, as Isaac, just with Isaac and Jacob, God shows, showed up to carry out His plan of election he did the same thing with, uh, he reminds me of Lazarus when Jesus called him out of the grave, right? He calls him out, brought him from death to life. God brings his elect to spiritual life. How many of you know what that is like, right? Isn't that awesome? There was a time in your life where your desires changed. <laughs> your direction in life changed. You started hating the things God hates. You started to love the things that God loves. This is the call that Paul's talking about. It's not as though the word of God has failed, family. The promises of God will be fulfilled. Remember that chain. Those he loved before the creation of the, before the foundation of the world, he predestined. And then those who he predestined, he called. He called. God's word stands strong. His electing love is radical throughout the story of Israel, to the time of this early church, to where we sit today, all the way to the end of the time. God will be glorified as He calls whom He wills, and He passes over whom He wills. Jesus explains this irresistible grace, this sovereign call of God this way. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. All who God elects will come because the Holy Spirit gives them this new, these new hearts to come. That's the call. The general call goes out, but in God's sovereign timing, His power creates new life. Are you being called right now? Do you feel your heart being stirred by the Holy Spirit? For those who think they don't need this call, 
For those who think they're already right with God because of their ethnicity, or maybe because of their upbringing, right? Because of who their parents are, because of the color of their skin, what country they live in. Consider this fifth glorious truth about God's election. God's election has nothing to do with ethnicity. It's not race. It's grace. Ethnicity, the E in our acrostic. Notice 6 and 7. I mean, actually, 6, 7 and 8. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Bottom line, not every person who is physically ethnic Israelite, who is a physical, physically ethnic Israelite, is a spiritually elect Israelite. Reformed scholar Douglas Moo summarizes it this way. If the Old Testament teaches that belonging to physical Israel in itself makes you a person or a member of God's true spiritual people, then Paul's gospel is in jeopardy. For were this the case, the gospel proclaiming that only those who believe in Jesus Christ could be saved would contradict the Old Testament and be cut off from its indispensable historical roots. Paul, therefore, argues in chapter 9 that belonging to God's true spiritual people has always been based on God's gracious and sovereign call and not on ethnic identity. Therefore, Moose says, God is free to narrow the apparent boundaries of election by choosing only some Jews to be saved. He also is free to expand the dimensions of his people by choosing Gentiles. How applicable is this for us? We proclaim those glorious assurance promises in Romans 8. When God saves a person, he will never abandon them. Once saved, always saved, right? But then some might say, look at the statistics. How can you believe this? I'm sorry, but those promises have failed. I can name many who used to be Christians, who used to come to NBC, right? And now they have no interest in Jesus and the church. Family, we can say the same thing Paul says. The promises of God haven't failed. Who told you that everybody in the church is truly born again? Where did you get that from? Show me the Bible where it says everyone who professes to be saved is truly saved. Remember Romans chapter 2. When it comes to salvation, there's nothing in your Jewish ethnicity itself that makes you a child of promise, a true spiritual son of Abraham. Paul said it this way when he's explaining this. He says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, 
but from God. Paul was saying you need an internal, internal surgery to happen, right? Not an external one. You need the Father from heaven that we're singing to this morning to adopt you, not a father from an Israelite family or a Christian family. You need a spiritual birth to be right in God's sight, not a physical birth into a certain covenant tribe of people. Divine election has nothing to do with ethnicity. So when we see Paul looked at, when he looked at all his fellow Israelites, he could understand that, yes, most of them are rejecting the Messiah. The only way to the one true God, therefore they're rejecting God. Right? They're rejecting the Messiah, they're rejecting God. But he also knew that there have always been a remnant of true Jews in the times of the prophets and kings who walked in obedience, and even that time, who walked in obedience as a result of their faith. There were brothers in his day that understood what it truly meant to be a true Jew. But don't miss the depth of this spiritual truth here. Paul doesn't do what he did back, remember in the previous chapters, focusing on faith. Remember, he used Abraham to show that if you want to be a true child of Abraham, it's not about works, it's about faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here in this section, we, as we discussed in our previous point, it's not those who have works or Jewish blood flowing through their brains, their brains, their veins, <laughs> that were children of Abraham. But those whom he chose, he called. Yes, we conclude that Isaac had true faith. Jacob had true faith, right? We can conclude that. This is the evidence of them being part of the true spiritual Israel. But as I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, we need to know what God means when he says he will save Israel. Why God gives so many assurances to the church, yet many Israelites, many people who profess to belong to the church deny him. It's because not all Israel is Israel. Not all professed Christians are truly Christians. God is talking about the election call here. The ultimate reason why people aren't saved. God's promises are for His elect. Those whom He chose to love before the world was even created. Are you trusting in Christ are you trusting in Christ today? Not just going to church, but we're truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you are from an ethnic Jewish background, or whether you're Italian and a Catholic background, you have an Italian Catholic background, whether you even grew up Muslim, or you're watching right now, and that was your background, you grew up Muslim. Whatever it is, right? Whatever your background is, whatever your ethnicity is, you need to understand that it is not race. It is grace. God's election is not about ethnicity. Salvation, what's the theme? Salvation is solely based on God's sovereign, unconditional election. God gets all the glory. Amen? If you are born again, if you have repented and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, and you continue to walk, right? Not just words, but you continue to walk in repentance and faith now. You can rest and be assured that God 
elected you. That God chose you. That Jesus died for you. What do we learn today about this doctrine of election? It's all grace. That was the acrostic. Grace. We had, it's grounded in Scripture. It's radical. It displays his attributes, right? It creates a call. It's not ethnicity. So here's my question. Here's how I want to kind of get close to ending. Why is this good news? Right? Why is this good news? Or is it good news? You better believe it's good news. This is good news. Why am I so passionate about this doctrine of election? In case you haven't noticed. (laughs) It's grounded in Scripture. It's grounded in Scripture. We don't believe this doctrine because we follow John Calvin. That's not why we believe this doctrine. Or because of tradition. Or because it stimulates our minds in an intellectual manner. Or even because we, we believe it in the depths of our souls because it glorifies God and it's scriptural. What's the second point? Why is the second point good news? That God's election is radical because anyone who is hearing this today, anyone who is hearing this today, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how much suffering you are in the midst of right now even, God can radically save you like he did with me and many of us here today. And the A, why is the A such good news? What's so great about this truth? If you're a Christian, you live, what do we live for? We live for God's glory. That's what we're excited about. That's what we want, for God to be glorified. So if your desire is for all his attributes to be exalted, we see in this election, in this text, That in election, we see his love and his mercy. We see his wrath. We see his justice, his sovereignty. And it's all poured out, right? For his holiness, for his glory. And the call, the fourth point, the electing call of God, this is very good news. This is so encouraging for all those who evangelize. (laughs) When I hit the streets and preach the gospel or even share the message, with my family members or people at work. I don't have to worry. Did I, did I say that right? Or, or maybe these words that I said, this is going to cause them to reject Jesus. I can't believe I did it this way. No. Family, although we should be wise, right? We should be wise. We should be loving when sharing the gospel. In the end, God will save His people even if we mess up. God's word never comes back void. It's always doing something. That's what motivates me when I go out there to preach. Either keeping them hard, keeping certain people's hearts hard, or softening them unto election. He is doing something. I don't have to be worried about what it is as long as we are faithful and proclaim and preach the gospel of grace The last point is such good news that God's election has nothing to do with ethnic and ethnic background that we have or where we come from or what our past is. Just look at the church, right? This church here. Are you kidding me? There's so many different ethnic backgrounds. Yes, 
God is bringing all ethnicities, all ethnicities into his kingdom. As we close, I'd like to show you this video clip that illustrates Jesus' electing love on the hated, greedy tax collector, Matthew. We live in the same world, Matthew. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy's done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. I don't get it. You didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. God chose Matthew before the foundation of the world and called him to himself to follow him. Whoever's watching today, I ask you this Is Jesus calling you to himself? Do you recognize that you deserve to be passed over and left in your sin? Do you understand that you have nothing to give God that could make you elect? Then humble yourself. Turn from your evil ways of either denying Christ completely or thinking you could be co-savior with him. Trusting in your works along with what Christ did. Whatever your sin is, Repent and believe and prove to be elect. For those who are trusting Christ alone now for their salvation, remember, you are not elect because you believed. That's not why you're elect. Your act of believing was a result of God's election. How humbling is that? Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But remember, as Scripture says, it is God that is working it out 
in you. Yes, we've seen professed believers walk away from Christ. Yes, we see many ethnic Jews who want nothing to do with the Messiah. But election is true. Unconditional election is true. The Word of God has not failed. All those who are ethnic Israel are not spiritual Israel, and not all those who call themselves Christians are truly Christians. God has a freedom to choose whom He wills and pass over whom He wills. Let's continue to seek Him, proclaim the gospel to everyone, and trust that His purpose will be fulfilled as He carries out His glorious call of sovereign, unconditional election. Let's pray. Father, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for creating in our hearts the desire to submit to your word, a desire to praise you, the desire to worship you. God, we know that we have this desire because you have chosen to place your saving love on us before we were even born and had nothing to do with anything in us. And God, we, we can't even thank you enough. We are so in awe of your mercy and your grace and your love. And God, we pray that we will continue to submit to your word, rather whether if we like it or not, God, help us glorify you and help us continue to preach the gospel to all nations, waiting to see who your elect are. So you can be glorified in your kingdom can further, God. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a fantastic sermon. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.